The Trumpists have been remarkably effective at stealing America's democracy. Is it too late? Can we battle back effectively to save democracy? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. They say it's always darkest before the dawn. These are indeed, beyond belief, dark times. The stunning failure of the 2016 Democratic presidential nominee to connect with average Americans led inexorably to people turning away from the same old, same old. Instead, to the untried but very entertaining grabber of, uh, <coughs> grabber of attention, Donald Trump, it is dark in terms of a great number of developments. The coronavirus, environmental protection, our rights and liberties, as had been protected by the First Amendment, staggering corruption and democracy itself, just for the most obvious. Today, our guest is David Daly, author of the best-selling Rat Eft, The True Story Behind the Secret Plan to Steal America's Democracy, who has a new book just now called Unrigged, How Americans Are Battling Back to save democracy. This is his second book, and it chronicles the victories and defeats in state efforts to reform elections and uphold voting rights. Daly is a frequent lecturer and media source about gerrymandering. He's a former editor-in-chief of Salon.com. His work has appeared in The New Yorker, The Washington Post, The Guardian, New York Magazine, The Atlantic, Boston Globe, Rolling Stone, Details, and he's been on CNN and NPR. When writing for the Hartford Current, he helped identify Mark Felt as the deep throat source for Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. That must have been fun. Today, we'll dive into the reasons to be at least a little optimistic and hear his take on the national electoral outlook. Well, thanks very much for being with us, David Daly. Before we get to your new book, how did you come up with a title for your first book? A name I don't think I don't think we can say over the public airways. The title of the book is Rat Eft, the true story behind the secret plan to steal America's democracy. Did the title choose itself? <laughs> the title did not choose itself. We actually sold that book to the publisher with the title of Gerrymandered Nation. And the marketing department said you can't actually get people to buy a book about the most boring topic in the world if you give it the most boring title <laughs> in the world. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, we thought about it and we, uh, you know, realized if you're going to talk about vulgar politics, perhaps you have to give it a vulgar name. <laughs> Uh, yes, I'm sure that grabbed attention, and it did sell very well. Well, it, the title of the new book is a little bit more optimistic, Unrigged, How Americans Are Battling Back to Save Democracy. As I get out into the world of America these days, I'm amazed at how many people don't see even the slightest threat to democracy from this presidency. His supporters truly believe Trumpism is patriotic and that the president is great for America. Somehow they see him as an actual conservative, which I just can't, as they say, wrap my head around. Your title includes the words, battling back to save democracy. Given the many decades of Republicans whittling away at public education, 
I get the impression a large percentage of Americans really don't know the meaning of the key word here, democracy. So to them, those of us who feel like we are, as you say, battling back to save democracy is seen as battling against what they believe is good for America. So to start us off, what has happened to a commonly understood meaning of the word democracy and our traditional widespread love for democracy? How did we get here? Oh, it's a great question. You know, I mean, I think we want to think about the word democracy as meaning majority rules. Um, and our elections have, for various reasons, um, taken a real detour from the concept of majority rules. Um, you know, some of that is geographic, right? So you have an upper chamber of Congress in the U.S. Senate that is is weighted towards, you know, smaller and less populous states. Um, so you are never going to have a true democracy in the U.S. Senate. Right. Uh, and you have also single member winner take all districts. So for the, the the lower house and four state legislatures. And whenever you've got single member winner takes all, the way you draw those lines matters a lot. Um, and this, I think, has been central to the Republican strategy, especially over the course of, of the, the last decade, uh, is recognizing that the demographic changes of the country were not in their direction. Um, and that they had to come up with a different strategy if they wanted a path back to to power. The crucial year for the Republicans really is 2008. They uh -huh. take a look at the changes. They take a look at the Obama election. Yeah, and if you think back to it, you know, it's not just that we elected the uh, first right. uh, black president that night. I mean, Democrats won a supermajority in the U.S. Senate that evening. And uh, if if you go back and look at the TV coverage, folks are talking about how the Republicans were going to be the minority party in this country for a generation to come. And as we know, it did not exactly work out that way, right? Mm -hmm. And it's because these Republican strategists recognized that as uh, historic a year as 2008 was, 2010 was in, in many ways much more consequential. If, if they could win specific state legislature control, we're talking about states like you know Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Ohio, Wisconsin, Michigan, Florida, swing states, purple states. But if they could win just a handful of state legislative races in those states, they could draw the maps uh, that divvied up control of the state legislatures and the congressional delegation for the next decade. And when you draw those maps, you can pack and crack all of those Democratic voters in such a way as to give yourself an enduring advantage for a decade to come. And that's what Republicans were able to do. Yeah, it seems a little bit slippery, but it worked. Yeah. It did work. It did. It, it's a brilliant strategy. <laughs> well, down-ballot state legislative elections never yeah. seem, seem to attract the attention that you and I think they are due uh, as a former state senator myself. You say, why mm -hmm. do you say the road to reform runs through state legislatures. What do you mean by reform, and how is democracy itself reformed? Well, I think that the road 
the road to minority rule and the road to majority rule um, are going to go through state legislatures. I mean, it, if you think about we really have a patchwork system of 50 different state laws r- regulating voting and elections mm. um, and redistricting processes. Um, so it is there is not necessarily a single bullet here that will work. And we've seen this in the middle of a pandemic, right? You see, if you want to vote absentee or by mail and you live in 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 Massachusetts or you live in Texas, it is, you know, two very different yes. processes. If you want to register to vote and you're in in Tennessee um, or you're in Oregon, it's it's very different. Um, if you have had a felony conviction in your past and you live in Florida or uh-huh. Vermont. It is a very different process. Uh, so if we are, you know, right now in this country, there are more than 50 million Americans, almost one in five of us, that live in a state in which one or both chambers of the state legislature is controlled by the party that won fewer votes in the 2018 election in that state. Uh, so if we are, and the first thing that a lot of these gerrymandered state legislatures have done is then go ahead and make it harder for people to register to vote. Um, so gerrymandered legislatures then go ahead and pass voter ID bills or they end days of early voting and absentee voting, or they conduct purges of ballot uh, of, 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 of voter rolls or, uh-huh. or put additional barriers to registration. Um, this has accelerated in the in the years since the 2010 election it has accelerated disproportionately in states under one party republican control um, and it has become turbocharged in the days since the supreme court in 2013 in the shelby county versus holder decision essentially guts the preclearance provisions of the voting rights act that had required um, about 16 states uh, to uh, essentially get a a federal okay from a judge or the Department of Justice if they had a history of racist patterns uh, in their election laws, if they wanted to to change those laws, they had to show that there was no negative uh, Mm. intentional repercussions to them. They don't have to do that anymore. And the very afternoon that that decision came down, Texas rushes their voter ID bill back. That same week, Mississippi and Alabama come forward with new restrictions. Um, so, so it sounds like you're, you're basic. It's, am I correct that you're saying that that very significant Voting Rights Act that President Johnson signed in 1965 uh, and and the law was affected in 2006 and 2014 that they are trying to whittle that away and they're having some actually effect at being able to uh, really affect voting rights as, as protected yeah, in 1965. No. I think that's exactly right. Uh, you know, I mean, so, so the, the voting rights act is, 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 you know, when Ronald Reagan reauthorized it back in 1982, 
he called it the uh, most lustrous of all the you know civil rights legislation of the 1960s um wow, i agree with reagan it was yeah right <laughs> um it, it is reauthorized in 2006 for 25 years uh-huh. by congress uh and it's nearly unanimous um it's i believe it's 98 nothing in the senate and you know, like 388 to 25 i'm i'm guesstimating mm-hmm. but it's in that ballpark um in the house and this is 2006 um you know still a republican house republican senate um mm. and this has completely changed uh, there was a time and it was only 2006 so it, it was not that long ago in which in which voting rights was not viewed through this particular hostile partisan lens um and i think Certainly the, the 2008 election changes things. The 2010 redistricting brings a different crop of people into the party. It incentivizes them to behave in a new way. Mm. Um, and then the 2013 decision in Shelby County, um, essentially it ended preclearance. The, the key enforcement mechanism of the Voting Rights Act um, is essentially whittled away. Um, and there, the court just this week announced that they're going to hear a, a case from Arizona that could whittle away section two. Uh, so, and which one is that? What does that do? Uh, essentially that has to do with uh, determining racial intent behind laws. Yikes. Uh, so, so, so that there have been, you know, a number of laws in Arizona that uh, courts have, decreed unconstitutional because they would have um, a disproportionate racial impact. Um, and those cases are, <laughs> uh, you could have a six, three conservative majority right. taking a look at these cases. Uh, section two is in the crosshairs. Um, mm. So uh, the voting rights act has long been considered probably the most influential and important of all the civil rights legislation of the 1960s it has been under a concerted assault boy you know the south definitely was militarily defeated in 1865 but i'll tell you sometimes it looks like they really won in the the big battle they you know they uh, never yeah so all of those states had to pass the 13th 14th and 15th they had to ratify the 13th 14th and 15th amendments to the constitution which are essentially uh, a guaranteeing voting rights and citizenship to to uh-huh. um formerly enslaved the formerly enslaved people and they then immediately began working on their state constitutions and building mm-hmm. structural racism mm-hmm. and 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 voting barriers into their laws um in such a way as to enshrine white supremacy and some of those states made it exactly that clear i mean they talk about white supremacy in alabama in uh uh in florida uh when they were having their state constitutional conventions and that they built in black coats and they built in i mean so much we talk a lot about felony uh right 
reenfranchisement these days. Mm -hmm. Felony reenfranchisement is a thing because all of these states across the South introduced it into their state constitutions in the 1870s as a form of trying to hold on to white control Mm -hmm. in what might otherwise become black majority states. Uh, You know, and uh, I did a show a week or so ago about uh, Trump's proposed patriotic education. He doesn't want us to learn (laughs) about that stuff. That's for sure. It's just too inconvenient. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about democracy here. Our guest today is David Daly, who's got a new book out called uh, Unrigged, How Americans Are Battling Back to Save Democracy. Yeah, it's it's amazing to me how, well, so many things like the the rollback, very slippery rollback of the Voting Rights Act. It seems like people, you know, they weren't paying attention. I mean, Trump is clearly a master of holding up new shiny objects to grab and hold our attention. I mean, who even remembers the tax issue of just a few days ago? You know, (laughs) there are always distractions. And so they've worked at the state level and many different ways to do away with uh, democracy. And you say the right, quote, took over North Carolina, Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, Ohio, Florida, Pennsylvania, all absolutely key to the Electoral College, and mm-hmm. have never given them back, even when Democrats win more votes. They set up, so they set up the roots of anti-majoritarianism there. In what ways is Wisconsin an example? Tell us about that, please. Wisconsin might be so undemocratic at this point that it is almost shocking. Um, If you look at the results of the election in 2018 in Wisconsin, voters there reelected a Democratic U.S. senator. They kicked out Scott Walker and elected Democrat Tony Evers governor. They gave Democrats every single statewide office. So the treasurer, attorney general, all of the the elected statewide offices went Democratic. Um, And they gave Democratic candidates for the state assembly about 203,000 more votes than Republicans. That's significant. So you, you would think that perhaps Democrats might have taken back the state assembly and in 2018, right? Mm-hmm. You would. No, no, no. They did not. They gained one seat off of that, and they cut the Republican majority to 6336. <laughs> even though, so Republicans won something in the ballpark of 44% of the vote, and they won 63% of the seats. Oh, my. And how did did the people of Wisconsin react to that? Well, what would you like them to do? You know, yeah, good point. They went to they went to the polls. They made their preference known, and because of the way that the districts had been drawn, their preference didn't matter. Mm. Uh, And this is what gerrymandering does. Gerrymandering erases the connection between voters and the ballot box. It insulates politicians from accountability. And it makes it almost impossible in many circumstances for a majority of voters to change their government if they don't like the direction it is going in. 
Um, and that's what a fair map is. A fair map is not a partisan map. It's not a map that's drawn by Democrats or drawn by Republicans. A fair map allows for a majority of citizens to replace their government. An unfair map entrenches those politicians in power, even when a majority of voters want to turn them out. And what you have seen is that the maps that Republicans drew in 2011 with the kind of technology and data that map makers have never had access to and the ability to use in previous gerrymanders has created lines that might as well be tattooed on the on these states in pennsylvania in north carolina in michigan in ohio and in wisconsin you regularly see that the party that wins more votes has not been able to take control of even a single branch of the state legislature in those states all decade long. And what you see as a result of that are policies that a majority of voters don't want, but can't do anything about. Um, Yeah. And that's exceptionally dangerous. Yeah. It really is. Well, we have to get to how we can fight back. But there's before we yes. get there, <laughs> there's there's a lot uh, uh, to discuss. I mean, it, it, it's it's about a fair competition. People like I think everybody likes the idea of a level playing field. Is it the case that the Trumpists, the Republicans, are just they recognize that they're not able to compete fairly, that they can't win a majority of the voters like they didn't in 2016? I mean, what happened regarding the various forces within the Republican Party? I I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, Although, you know, the, the one thing I would say is Donald Trump has certainly become the loudest voice on things like voter fraud and mail in voting. But he didn't create this. Uh-huh, true. It, it, it's the Republic. You know, I mean, Donald Trump was not even a figment of the Republican Party's imagination yeah. in 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 2009 and 2010 when Republicans came up with the strategy known as Red Map that involved winning state legislatures and gerrymandering these districts. Donald Trump was not a part of the legal community or 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 on the Supreme Court bench that overturned a Shelby County. Donald Trump and his forces were not, you know, in the North Carolina legislature when they enacted the uh, monster suppression bill there or in Texas. Um, So this to me very much has to do with a political party. The Republican Party in this case, that I think has lost faith with the, the, the very idea of democracy, mm. by which I mean majority rules. Um, and I think that the lesson Republicans took from 2008 and the changing demographics of the country is that they had two options, right? And they presented those options in 2012 yes after you know after romney loses um 
Republicans lost the popular vote or the White House for, for what, the uh, sixth time in, in, in <laughs> the last seven elections. And they conducted an autopsy. Yeah. And, and they said, well, we have to change. We're only talking to an older white audience, and that audience is dying out. We've got to find a message for Latino voters. We have to talk to LGBTQ voters. Mm-hmm. We have to talk to black voters. We have to talk to young people. Uh, and the autopsy didn't mince any words. It's an amazing document if you go back and look at it. They say Americans look at the Republican Party and they see a party of stuffy old men. Latinos look at us and they and they wonder if we even want them in this country. Mm. Uh, and so they they urged that the party change and they urged that the party embrace immigration reform, you know, and this was the, 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 this this was not a bunch of Democrats, this (laughs) report, this was Republican party establishment taking a look at, at where they had gone, the losses that they had sustained and what they had to do to move forward. They didn't do any of those Why? things, right? Why? And they didn't do any of those things because they had already put in place things like RedMap that changed the very nature of the party itself. Oh. Um, and my favorite example here is a guy who we have all come to know. His name is Mark Meadows. Mark Meadows in 2010 and 2011, Mark Meadows runs a sandwich shop. He runs Aunt. B- He's the proprietor of Aunt B's sandwich shop. Oh wow! In the in the rural western mountains of North Carolina, when Republicans take over the state house and and state senate in North Carolina in 2010, they have the ability to draw all of the maps in North Carolina unilaterally without any Democrats in the oh, room. Wow. Mm. What Republicans decided to do was to take the 13-member North Carolina congressional delegation, and they wanted 10 of the 13 seats for themselves. So purple state, they wanted 10 of 13 seats. What they had to do to do that was go out to the western part of the state. There was a district that included Asheville, which is kind of a hippie college town in the mountains, surrounded by all of these more conservative mountain towns. And Asheville had been a real swing district in the past. It had gone all kinds of ways. It had at that point in time, it was represented by a conservative Democrat named Heath Schuler, who you might remember if you were a football fan. He was a quarterback for, for the Washington football team for, for a while. Um, and Schuler takes one look at these new lines, and he says, I can't run in here. Mm. Uh, so they, they crack Asheville in half. They draw a line down the middle of the city. They put half the Democrats on one side, half on the other side, and as a result, you end up with two really conservative districts. Uh, uh, Schuler retires. Mm. A guy... And Meadows says, well, I'm going to run here. Meadows jumps into a conservative primary, about six, seven candidates, and he decides he's going to be the birther voice in this primary. You can go online and you can find a video of him saying, I'm going to send Barack Obama back to Kenya or wherever it is he comes from. (laughs) Meadows wins the seat with 37% of the vote. Okay, so. So not even with a majority in this conservative district that didn't exist the year before, Meadows goes to Washington. He's the guy who drives the shutdown in 2013. He's the guy who 
files a parliamentary notion of vacate the chair that pushes John Boehner into retirement. Now he is one of the most powerful men in Washington as Donald Trump's chief of staff. He does not exist. He has been pushed onto our national politics because of gerrymandering. Wow. And they, they are fine with that because it's about power. Sometimes people ask me, yes. you know, how can they do this? How can they do this? And can it really be just about gaining power? Well, apparently it yes. is. Apparently <laughs> it is. Uh, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. It is a group effort. And we're going to be talking about what we can do to keep democracy alive. Our guest today is David Daly, who's best-selling book was Rat Eft, The True Story Behind the Secret Plan to Steal America's Democracy. New book just out called Unrigged, How Americans Are Battling Back to Save Democracy. Okay, we have redistricting in place, this gerrymandering. Are there other paths possible for regaining power? How does redistricting make other paths either impossible or nearly impossible? Yeah, that's the challenge there, right? Uh, the challenge is that when you draw these lines that are so stout uh, and so difficult to get over that um, it makes it difficult to, to take power back in some of those states, um, it's, 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 it's why it's such a powerful tool. And what I think people need to remember as we head into an election year in 2020 is that this once again is a census year? This is a redistricting election. Right. Yes, um, that's so important. People don't so much. Yeah, people don't get that. You know, the legislative elections, especially in years that end with a zero, boom. Uh, it, it's it's huge, and I don't think the awareness of that is is what it needs to be. And you mentioned the, the census. How, that's really interesting. I mean, what the Trump people have been trying to do with that to to uh, uh, disenfranchise people who may not be fully uh, have fill out all their forms. How in what ways can the census be used as a Republican tool? How important is that? And powerful. Oh boy. You know, the amazing thing is that Republicans have just been ruthless about um, using every single lever of power that they possibly can yeah. to hold on to their own power. Um, and the census really is the trigger for redistricting, for apportionment of the, the U.S. House. So it becomes the basis of the Electoral College um, and the data that's collected in the Senate uh, in the census is the beginning of the redistricting process in every state. So first you determine total population, which determines which states get, get how many members in the U.S. House, which, of right. course, plays a role in determining how many Electoral College votes your state gets. Um, and then it is the beginning of drawing lines um, in state legislatures because it's all, it's all based essentially on even population. Um, so what Republicans have also figured out is that if they can collect citizenship data – over through the census that that would give them an advantage in the redistricting process if they were to shift the standard and oh. uh, 
I'm in danger of getting wonky here. So, you know, stop me if I go too far. <laughs> but um, so congressional districts nationwide, constitutionally, they have to be drawn based on total population. Uh-huh. So you count everybody who lives there, man, woman, child, citizen, non-citizen, uh, and you divide by the number of districts. And, uh, you know, that is the number of people that have to live there. They're just about exactly. There's almost no variation allowed well, by mm, the courts. But as far as drawing state legislative districts, states have got a lot more leeway as far as the criteria that they use. Um, uh, states have in the past adopted the you know national standard, uh, but there's nothing that compels them to. Yeah. Uh, and this is what Republicans have realized as well. If, nothing forces us to draw based on total population why don't we draw based on a standard that would give us some benefit so they've come up with this idea of citizen voting age population which is to say you only count citizens and you only count people over the age of 18 and then suddenly you have an older whiter more Mm. rural more conservative electorate you divide that up and you've gotten yourself a pretty good advantage. Um, yeah. The political scientists in Texas say that if you were to draw state house districts based on citizen voting age population in Texas versus total population, you would effectively roll back two decades of demographic change. Wow. And that's clearly what they want to do. I mean, I don't think... Yes. It does seem I don't know how people can claim to be patriotic when they want to, you know, have white Protestant male rule over the rest of us. So clearly, you know, I just it amazes me. But somehow people uh, do believe that that Trump is good for America and that all this stuff is uh, Mm. is conservative. I find I mean, what is it conserving? Nothing that I know. (laughs) I mean, nothing. Conserving white supremacy. Yes. You're right. I didn't give him credit for that. That's true. <laughs> I suppose that is conservative there. We got to briefly touch on the Powell Doctrine, 1971. That was big. It's very little known. Uh, but what what about the Powell Doctrine and how that affects democracy going from there? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that when when you talk about how Republicans have Use the tools of power and really reinvented the game. You have to go back that far. Um, and Lewis Powell, um, who ends up on the U.S. Supreme Court, um, he writes what became a, a really famous memo on behalf of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce back in 1970s, in which he essentially says that that the chamber had to get more involved in politics and in local politics because that was where decisions were being made. Um, And the chamber does indeed come in in local politics, really heavy on one side, um, on the Republican side. Uh, And this is part of, you know, Democrats look for a superhero savior and Republicans spent all of this time building a movement. and I think you can look at the Powell Doctrine as really the beginning of 
in some ways as Republican movement building in the states, at the local level, finding candidates to run for school boards and city councils and judgeships yeah, and really recognizing, you know, how power works um, and how campaign finance works and sort of how the, the economics of this can be leveraged to their advantage. Um, and this has been extraordinarily consequential, um, you know, as far as the, the building and maintaining of power. I think it's fascinating. I hadn't thought about it <clears throat> this way until you just said it, that the Republicans tap into movements, whereas Democrats are looking for a savior. I know this from experience. The people just, you know, the president, the president, the president, whereas Republicans yeah. got a little bit smarter. They imagine actually learn from history. They they tap into movements, and that's very, very powerful, and that happens more at the local level. Uh, the, the Tea Party, which I guess doesn't really exist anymore, they learned that spending at the state level yields more rewards. Uh, I, I wonder how you, we can motivate Democratic and liberal contributors to invest in in state races. It's just, you know, people don't even see it. They're looking at the shiny object that Trump is so good at switching. How can people get motivated in this way? You know, I think we have to keep telling the story of what Republicans were able to do and how easy it was for them. You know, I mean, so Republicans in 2010 have this strategy and they say, we're going to use state legislatures as our path back to yes, power. Yes. It cost them $30 million to execute this red map strategy. $30 million. It's, it's you know, it's, it's chump change in American politics. The U.S. Senate race in New Hampshire was a $100 million race back in 2016, right? So for $30 million in 2010, Republicans were able to give themselves this huge leg up in state legislatures in all of these swing states. They were able to give themselves an electoral college advantage as a result in many of the of those states, and they were able to give themselves uh, a big firewall with regards to congressional delegations in these states as well. Um, Thirty million dollars, um, and this is the biggest bargain in modern American yeah. politics. This is Moneyball, right? I mean, everybody everybody talks about, you know, Billy Bean and the, the, the Oakland A's and how that they're able to compete against the Yankees and the Red Sox uh, and all the, you know, big money teams. It's because they're able to exploit market inefficiency. Uh, and what Republicans recognize is that state legislative seats have a lot of power and they don't cost a lot to win. And they put that together and they were able to take control um, and Democrats have to have to think about politics and the mechanics of politics just as ruthlessly and craftily and intelligently as Republicans did. <laughs> I do think one of our mistakes was to, much as I love uh, uh, the, the former first lady, when she said, when they go low, we go high. No, not a good idea. Not a good idea. You got to <laughs> compete fairly. I mean, this is tough stuff. And they, the fact that they were able to do it with 
only $30 million is just, it's appalling. Sometimes I don't know about the DNC, I, but that's, that's time for another show. <laughs> we could do a whole hour on that. Sometimes. Oh, my goodness, yes. Well, you say that there is a history of expansion and contraction when it comes to voting rights in America. I'm looking to, to turn it a little, start to get a little bit more optimistic yeah. here. Okay. <laughs> no, yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, um, we throw around words like a democracy. I mean, when have we been a democracy exactly, right? Um, and I don't say that as an excuse. Um, um, I mean to say that from the very founding of the country, there have been rules in place about who gets a say and who doesn't. And at the beginning, it was, you know, white men of property. Um and slowly, there is an expansion of the vote. Um, there's an expansion of the vote to a former enslaved persons after the Civil War. And the 19th Amendment um, um, it gives women the right to vote. And then you have the Voting Rights Act in the 1960s that um, you know, finally it removes some of the uh, new barriers that come into play um, after Reconstruction in, in the Jim Crow era. Um, but I also think it's dangerous to look at voting rights, you know, so so there is one narrative of American history, right, in which you start with white men of property and then slowly enfranchisement continues along and it looks like an arc of progress. Right. But what I want to say is that at every point in time that the that voting was extended, there were also these steps being made to make it harder. So it's it's really fits uh -huh. and starts. You know, it's a step forward right. and two steps backwards. It's a couple steps forward and then a you know a half step back. Um, so it's you know it's all of these states in the 1870s being forced to ratify the, the 14th amendment extending the franchise to former enslaved citizens and then enacting you know the mississippi plan uh and enacting black codes across the south yeah. that then make it harder for people to vote um and this is the case all the way up through the current moment, um, um, you can see it in 2020, right? Uh, so there, there's a pandemic going on. People say, well, then I guess we ought to do more mail-in voting. Mm -hmm. And then there's an assault on the post office. And then people say, well, if the post office isn't going to work, then maybe we ought to set up drop boxes. And then there becomes an assault on drop boxes. <laughs> uh, so people are fighting back. The the fight for, for the ballot is is a fight, yes. um, and every time there is a victory, the forces that do not want to make it easy to vote try and change the game and change the rules. And so you are always playing whack-a-mole, and <laughs> any victory has to be defended against encroachment. Uh, and <laughs> the history of the nation shows that it will always be encroached on. Oh, my goodness. Whack-a-mole. Yeah, that's great. Well, people don't have the patience for that these days, unfortunately. But there, there are some examples. Your new book, uh, which is called uh, uh, Unrigged, How Americans Are Battling Back to Save Democracy, 
let's hear some examples of uh, where people have uh, yeah. fought back somewhat effectively. You know, um, if uh, there were five states in 2018 that enacted redistricting, the reform of the ballot box, and they were not states you might imagine. They include Utah, Missouri, Ohio, Michigan, and oh. Colorado. Hmm. Um, you had you, you had Florida through a statewide ballot initiative, constitutional amendment process. Sixty-four percent of Floridians voted to. Um, return voting rights to uh, formerly incarcerated people in the in the state of Florida. Mm -hmm. um, you had Idaho and a number of really? states out west in which uh, they expanded Medicaid at the ballot box. Um, these these red states that you might not imagine uh, being able to expand Medicaid uh, with a majority of more than 60 percent of voters uh, and yet citizens organized and got this done that they essentially went around their legislatures uh, and they did the really, really difficult work of going around the state, collecting signatures and then, you know, qualifying for, for the ballot and and beating back all of those hurdles um, and, and then winning these huge votes um, to create change and give people health care and voting rights back. Um so all of this can be done, uh, mm. but it is, you know, it is, it is hard work and the forces that are lined up against us don't quit. <laughs> it is hard work. We have to be persistent. There's no doubt about it. And I wish I knew the source of this quote, politics and protest, both necessary, neither sufficient, but people, think <laughs> people can make noise. Uh, Absolutely. And, and as you say, you know, history doesn't move in a straight line. It is moving in many different directions at once. And, the, you know, in, in some blue states, barriers are being taken down, red states, new ones being erected. Uh, what are some effective ways that you've seen to, to take down the barriers? And what about the push for independent commissions on redistricting? I know our governor uh, vetoed that. Is that having some uh, traction? Yeah, you know, I think you touched on this at the beginning, right? You know, I mean, I think Americans are fundamentally frustrated by anything that smacks of cheating. Um, and most Americans of good faith believe that gerrymandering is cheating. If you look at the numbers in the polls, it's, you know, it's 70, 80 percent of people who uh I don't think politicians ought to be able to, to draw their own districts, choose their own voters, um, yeah. and back independent uh, commissions. Um, when this is on the ballot in red states and blue states and purple states, it wins. It wins, you know, 60, 70 percent of the vote, um, which, you know, it doesn't happen if it's just some, you know, crazy wild-eyed liberal thing. Um, Americans don't like cheating, whether it is in, in politics, whether it's the Houston Astros banging on a trash can to tell their hitters – what pitch is coming next? Um, Americans fundamentally believe in fair play, and uh, I think that is the case amongst amongst Democratic and Republican voters. Uh, I'm not always certain that's the case. <laughs> I think if you look at the Republican Party and the officials and the actions that you know politicians have taken in office. Um, it's something else, but we, I think, fundamentally want our votes to count. 
One would think so. And, you know, Trump, obviously, I think what what people like about him, I'm trying to figure it out all the time, is that he didn't play by the rules. And us poor suckers and losers, we're playing by the rules and we don't get anywhere. So I don't know. It sort of seems to me it makes cheating more admirable, at least in a, in a leader. But I think in general, you know, you're right. People don't like cheating. And Joseph Goebbels allegedly urged Hitler to say of the other side what is true about your side. And the Trump people are saying, you know, the only way he can lose is if the vote is rigged. But the word rigging is not at all specific. Are the Trumpists saying of our, you know, the Democrats, what is true about them, that they're trying to rig the election? And do people get that, do you think? I'm concerned. (sighs) Um, You know, Trump talks a lot about voter fraud, about mail-in voter fraud. The trouble is, when you you look even... There really isn't any. If you take a look at any of these claims, they don't hold up even even in the slightest. Um, These are fundamentally myths and and lies. Um, I mean, voter fraud is not a problem in this country. Voter fraud is extraordinarily rare. I mean, Uh, it's... it's it's Basically getting hit by lightning on consecutive days rare <laughs> you know yeah um you know it's it's um uh, um so um there is a researcher at the at the heritage foundation who's made it his business to, to be you know who was on trump's uh, a voter integrity commission yeah. uh and is always going around the country talking about voter fraud he's got a database of every single example he can document going back into the 1980s it's 1300 cases so like oh. this is this is the, this is the most oh, conservative of conservatives and that's what he's been able to find going back you know 40 years imagine how many votes how many billions of votes have been cast over all this time there was a an no, op-ed in the Washington existing. Post not that long ago by the Republican lawyer who has been their election lawyer who's been going around the country looking for election fraud yeah. for all of these years. And his name is Ben Ginsburg, and he, he, he wrote an op-ed in which he conceded, listen, I've tried to find it. I've been out there doing this. I've been making this argument for you know decades, and it's not there. So they're painting a picture that, that the Democrats cheat. Because I, I, that goes along with what you say, that people, most Americans, don't like cheating. So they they keep saying over and over and over again, you know, the big lie, yeah. that uh, that the Democrats are rigging the election. And it doesn't happen to be true. No, no uh, it's not happening. So what can be done? There are a multitude of organizations working to protect democracy, to restore democracy. I always worry that, you know, among all these organizations that send me emails many times a day looking for money, I I was worried that there's overlap. You say there are some great groups that listeners may not know about who who are effective. This is about restoring democracy. Please share some of that information. Sure. Well, you know, I mean, I think that there are some terrific groups um, and some more than ever right now that that are out there. So, So, you know, some of them, everybody knows, you know, Common Cause and the League of Women's Voters and the Lawyers Committee on Civil Rights and the folks who run the election protection hotlines. But, you know, I mean, I I think that 
know, Democrats especially have gotten wise to the need for um, building up their base and building power the same way that Republicans have. And there are new groups like, you know, Run for Something and Sister District and a forward majority that I think are trying to understand the levers of power the exact same way Republicans did and encourage people to run for, you know, state legislature and you know, local council and to and to fund them and to train them and to and to build them up and to really raise the next generation uh, of pr- progressive policymakers and candidates, um, because if we don't do that, um, then there's no base, um, and then there's no future pipeline of of candidates uh-huh. for higher office. Uh, but you know, at the same time, those local offices, I think, as we have all learned, especially yes. in the middle of a pandemic, have got a lot of power, a lot of influence, and can do a lot of things to make our lives better or more difficult. Yes, they can. And his uh, uh, town hall on uh, October fifth. Uh, Joe Biden was was he was asked by a young person about uh, you know you're an old white male how can why should I vote for you and this guy was Hispanic guy fifty six years younger and Biden I thought brilliantly said you know you are the future get involved make it happen and I think that's starting to resonate with that large what is it Generation Z X I have no idea but young people these days. So how, in just a couple of minutes, what, what's your sense of, uh, this is personal optimism. Do you feel that uh, things, I mean, as you say, things move in many directions at the same time, but how optimistic are you, David Daly? I think that this is such a crucial election. You know, the next decade is on the ballot and we've got to be voting up and down this ballot. I yes. mean, um, I think that the, what we have seen in this country over the course of the last two to four years has been this massive uprising of civic awareness and involvement. People who, who have never before joined a march or run for office or signed a petition have you know, gotten involved and found themselves out in the streets and been, and been organizing and involved and donating and, and yes. active in a way that they never have been. And I mean, I think, Americans yeah. understand now that democracy is a verb. You know, it's not just some ideal. Right. It is it's something that has to be active and has yes. to be tended. And if we don't tend to it, it can go away. Yes. Um, and that to me is what I'm optimistic about. I'm optimistic that more and more of us understand that democracy is something we all have to work at and it needs to be an active commitment um yeah i'm seeing that what will happen in this election you know i i don't think anybody knows and i'm not in the business thankfully of making electoral predictions uh but this is a crucial election for shaping what the next decade and generation is going to look like simply by virtue of being a census year zero year election that yeah. will control the redistricting let alone everything at the white house and all yeah. of the other levels and we've got to turn out i think people we've are doing that yeah people, absolutely th- there's a real sense that wow this is important and everybody has to get out there and vote the book the new book is called unrigged how americans are battling back 
to Save Democracy. Our guest has been its author, David Daly. Thank you so much for being with us today. Very, very helpful and uh, contributing to democracy, keeping democracy alive. Thank you. Thank you, Bert. I appreciate it. Smile is in the making. We gotta fight the powers that be.